0: Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, This is our first live show. We're joining from Salt Lake City. I have um, Tom Cook here as well. Tom, are you, let me invite you to the audience. You gotta tell us about the MX Experience Summit. So Raj, uh, Tom and I, we're right now in the same room. There we go, I found you, (laughs) Um, muted you, Tom. Um, So yeah, we're in the same room room, and uh, we're in Salt Lake City. We're here for the MX Experience Summit. It's a really big summit uh, happening over the course of three days. And MX very graciously gave us some codes as well for virtual registration. But first, Tom, tell us, what is MX Experience Summit? Why should we care? What do you guys are do- What are you guys doing? Yeah, do
1: you want me speaking, to Yeah, let's just do that. Yeah, so this is the first uh, annual MX Experience Summit. So uh, we're here at Snowbird at the Snowbird Resort in Utah. Uh, last year we tried to do the event, but with COVID, it got shut down. So we had to go virtual. So it's been great. We've had we have over 400 people here, uh, and it's all about just bringing people together across the industry to have good conversations, to talk about hard things, to disagree. Uh, and just talk about how we can move the industry forward.
0: So what are some of the highlights? Uh, you had Peyton Manning today. How does that fit to FinTech?
1: <laughs> we had some fun. So we had Peyton Manning. He, he was our first speaker today. Uh, and he talked a lot about leadership and calling audibles. Uh, and never has there been a time, I think, where we've had to call more audibles <laughs> than during the pandemic. So, nice. um, so he tied it in nicely to kind of what we're doing. Uh, We also had some incredible people like Jane Marie Chen, uh, who came from the Stanford D School uh, and talks all about design thinking uh, and how she created this incredible incubator for uh, babies in third world countries and really saved thousands and thousands of lives. Um, And so we talked about innovation and, and how we can think more about how we build products that have a purpose and can drive outcomes. Um, and then Fumbi Chima from BECU, And Fumbi is incredible. If you haven't met her before, uh, she's an incredible speaker. She's doing some incredible things for BECU, But she talked about leadership as well. So a lot of the conversations today were about leadership and how we can drive kind of the industry forward.
0: So there's also some events happening tomorrow. Could you tell us about it? And for those who are in the audience, if they want to tune in, how can they?
1: Yeah. So uh, we've still got virtual tickets. So if you can't make it to Snowbird, uh, we'd love for you to join online. Uh, we have some great speakers. So Mario Andretti is coming out. Uh, you know the the most esteemed and um, and successful racing racing driver of all time. Uh, We also have uh, my personal favorite that I'm super excited to hear from is Allison Felix. Mm -hmm. So Allison Felix is going to come. She's going to talk about breaking down barriers. She's going to talk about how you can kind of be your best self and go and do some really cool things at any stage of your life, any stage of your career. She'll talk about being the most decorated track and fit us track and field Olympic athlete of all time. And she's only one medal away from being the all-time track and field athlete um so so right now we have to put in that us distinction but i'm gonna (laughs) egg her on to go for another olympics uh to do it and if anybody could allison could so we've got some great keynotes but then also some great breakout sessions uh, where we really tackle kind of the hard issues that the industry is facing everything from crypto to open finance Uh, we have some really good
0: conversations that we're having Wonderful. So the code is fintech cafe. Yep. They can go on your website uh-huh. to do virtual res- registration. Yep. Put fintech cafe, and it's free. And it's free.
1: And you Wonderful. can join us tomorrow. And then we'll also have all the other uh, sessions and keynotes streaming. Um, and you can watch them on demand. And then we'll be making all the content available over the coming weeks. So Wonderful. please join us.
0: Well, thank you for providing us the content or yeah. the code as well. So appreciate the generosity. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's kick it off. Um, we're five minutes after, and uh, we, I forgot to do some housekeeping items. So first off, we are recording today's call. If anybody has any objections, please drop now. And second, this is episode 24 of Fintech Cafe. Monisha and I, we have been co-hosting, and we've, had, we've been having a lot of fun. So today we have Raj Patel, who's joining, he's a co-founder of Mantle. We'll go more into his introduction shortly. And thirdly, Um, Munisha and I, we work for a big bank here in the U.S., and our employer is not associated with our show or the fact that we're not endorsing any products. The intention of this is purely just to build a community around uh, fintech thought leadership. So with that, Munisha, over to you for your interview.
2: Thank you, Ambika. And it sounds like you guys are definitely got the MX fever going. Um, Definitely feel it here in Minneapolis and can't wait to hear, I think, about your and Ambika's thoughts on how that's going. Um, I am, uh, like Ambika uh, like said, Munisha. I work in a financial services space and um, very excited for the conversation today. With that, should we kick it off, Ambika? Please do. All right. So, Raj, uh, just sort of uh, getting into that 30 minute structured uh, portion of our conversation, uh, could we start with just your journey to Mantle, how um, you got to where you were in solving the problem that Mantle does today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both for having me. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, So uh, for the audience, a little bit of just background about me and then certainly happy to go into the founding story. Uh, My name is Raj Patel. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Mantle, as you heard. Um, Mantle is a enterprise software company um, specifically for community and regional banks and credit unions. So all of the Uh, different technologies that we build and go to market with are specifically for those institutions. So we don't um, sell our services to fintechs or large banks. It's really about serving those um, sort of community and regional banks that are the vast majority of the U S financial system. So we're really, um, you know, founded um, with uh, a mission to help, um, you know, increase the access to technology um that you know a larger institution or some of the neobanks might have across uh, more more um with more equity across the u.s financial system and that hopefully allows those community institutions to serve their customers better um in terms of sort of how i sort of came about um you know working in this space i i actually didn't have a fintech background i actually worked at a big bank after college but sort of um you know, not not on the fintech side. Uh, myself and my two co-founders were actually looking more at starting a neobank. Um, very similar to our friends at HM Bradley that I know you've had on recently and many others in the industry that are doing a great job um, starting challenger banks. We were looking at that, you know, in late 2015, early 2016. And as part of that journey and looking and starting to build technology around that and surveying different onboarding experiences and different mobile apps and and, and just seeing what was out there Um, we kind of realized that actually the technology that was sort of generally widely available for the U S financial system was something that we could really improve upon. And so it was really looking at a completely different idea uh, that we stumbled across the opportunity that, that ended up becoming Mantle.
2: That's fantastic because it almost seems like you're solving the problem of the have versus the have nots, because I think the community banks and the smaller banks have definitely been left in the race to technology. Um, so why, uh, why have they fallen? I mean, could you help us understand the digital transformation that has taken over, right? And yep. why specifically these institutions have uh, fallen back?
3: Yeah, look, it, historically, if you go back 10, 20, 30 years, community banks were the vast majority of the banking in the country. They were the you know, 60 plus percent of you know, US consumers were banking at a community bank or credit union. And over the last 20 years, that's actually rapidly changed and inverted. And now it's more like 60% of the, the of uh, individuals are banking at the large institutions. Um, and that's, it's really important that we have community banks because they foster competition in the U.S. financial system, right? And that gives more choice and access to all consumers. It's also really important that we have neobanks, right? And they also challenge that, that paradigm. And what's really happened over the last 20 years is a couple of different things. Uh, But most importantly, from a technology perspective, the larger institutions are spending at double the rate on a relative basis on technology than community banks. So a typical large institution is spending about 45 basis points or 0.45% of their total assets per year on technology and investing in technology. A typical credit union is about 0.35% of their total assets. And a typical community bank is at about 0.22% of their assets. So on a relative basis, adjusting for the relative size of their institutions, they're investing 50% of the dollars that you know, a JP Morgan or a Wells Fargo or a Citigroup or something like that might be investing. And obviously, if you compound that year on year on year after a decade or two decades, you can see how that gap doesn't become isn't small anymore. It's become very significant
2: so that scale of capital aside what are some of the biggest pain points that they're seeing uh, that you're helping solve
3: yeah i think i think that not only has there been an underinvestment which i was talking about before but the other half of it is is there hasn't been a good amount of choice in us fintech and you guys you know potentially in the room might be thinking wait a minute there's so much fintech activity but A lot of that fintech activity, in fact, the majority of that fintech activity has been very much consumer facing and not necessarily selling back into U.S. financial and the U.S. financial system. And the market structure of of bank tech, as it were, is really actually an oligopoly. It's controlled. The vast majority of institutions in America are buying their technology from one of three vendors that probably very few people in this, in this room know the name of, but they were founded in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they have literally been around for 60, 70 years um, providing banking technology. And so the choices that any individual bank has are actually really limited. And so Mantle's coming in and a lot of other of our, you know, contemporaries are coming in and really providing choices. So it's not just about the dollars, it's also about the choices that those dollars can, can give banks.
2: That's fantastic. And then uh, just kind of going along that path on the setting the background, mm-hmm. uh, technology has helped unlock potential right through eliminating some of the inefficiencies in mm-hmm. 60-70-year-old systems. Um, so uh, curious, uh, through this process, not only have you uh, you know, created a speed to market, but you've probably seen some unintended consequences uh, which have been a positive. Uh, are you able to talk to any Specific use cases a reference in terms of how, um, you know, your success stories have come about.
3: Yeah, look, and, and obviously most institutions, you know, invest in technology like Mantles um, to, you know, to, to drive economic outcomes, right? Acquire more customers, make that easier, lower their cost structure, all of those things that obviously are very important for the financial well-being of their companies. But there are also some like, You know, nice, not necessarily unintended consequences, but nice bonuses as well. Um, You know, our technology and we do consumer and commercial account opening. So allowing individuals and businesses to open accounts at at our institutions. And we allow that to happen, whether that's online, in a branch, over the phone or any combination thereof. And one of the nice things that we love to hear is a lot of our institutions are talking about how that's increased actually access right to the bank it's not just those people that can get in a car and drive to their branch right it's people in more rural areas that might be an hour from their nearest bank branch it could be people who are in more underserved populations right that you know maybe they for example they might have a mobile phone and that now allows them to access banking services right you don't need a computer anymore you can do it on your mobile phone you don't need to go into that branch and so what it's also actually done is the technologies allowed the banking U.S. banking system to become more inclusive. And, you know, we've definitely seen in the data that Mantle's helped, um, you know, our customers do that as well, which is really cool.
0: So, um, Raj, would it be fair to summarize that Mantle is a fintech that enables digital transformation for a financial institution?
3: Yeah, that would be fair. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs>
0: so a follow-up, therefore, is how do you define innovation in your
3: space? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, Um, innovation is a word we hear a lot and everybody wants to be innovative, Uh, just like everybody wants to be really attractive and everybody wants to be really intelligent. But I guess it's really what you do that with that innovation that really counts, right? Um, You know, we've definitely seen innovation for innovation's sake, which is like, you know, um, I was speaking to somebody the other day and they put in a system where you can use Alexa to do bank transfers, That's really cool and really innovative, but if nobody uses it, what was the point of that innovation? So I think what Mantle really talks about with our banking institutions, and and this helps them more institutions actually adopt a more innovative approach is, great, we're going to do this innovative thing or we're going to do this new thing, but what is it actually going to lead to? How is it going to make your customers happier? How is it going to get you more customers? Um, How is it going to make you or your customers more successful? And how do we measure that numerically? And that's when you know innovation becomes reality, right? That's when you go from talking about it to actually doing it.
0: Got it. And so, um, could you elaborate more on your users, like who are your customers in terms of financial institutions? What's their asset size?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, banks and credit unions all across the country. Um, typical mantle customer ranges in size from about five hundred million. Probably on the low end, uh, 400 million I think is, is our smallest institution, and then you know ranges up to the sort of 25, 30 billion range, more on the on the larger side. It 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 completely spans the gambit. Um, we have uh, 10 billion dollar institutions that are in big metropolitan centers. We have 8 billion dollar institutions that are in rural areas, and we have you know 400 million million dollar institutions across that spectrum as well, all across the country, whether that's in California, New York, and everywhere in between. Um, You know, one of the 10 largest credit unions, for example, in the country is is a Mantle customer. So um, very much representative of the mid-market of U.S. financial system.
0: Got it. So is your um, digital account opening platform, is this a white label solution or how, what's your pitch to a credit union, let's say in the state of Washington?
3: Yeah, look, it it is completely white labeled. I don't think anybody that is intending to do business with a credit union in Washington uh, needs to know about a company called Mantle. Um, I think that, you know, the what it's the what individuals want to know where they're going and, and putting their financial information on record at a at a at a bank or credit union is that that's a safe and secure um process and that does not involve you know them knowing that, you know, there's a fintech called Mantle involved in that. So it's completely white labeled. Um, In terms of, you know, what we would talk to a credit union in Washington about, it really is, is, it depends on sort of what their goals are. Typically for a credit union, it's about expanding membership. And typically for a bank, it's about increasing deposits. And they may sound very similar because as you... Construct the technology or set up the technology for a credit union that wants to grow membership is actually very different than how we would set up the technology for a bank that wants to grow deposits. Um, But essentially what we would say is that, you know, by putting our technology in place and we talk about specific pieces of technology that will drive a better user experience. And we talk about how that's measured, whether it's MPS, time to open an account, conversion rate, those sorts of things. And that will obviously lead to better outcomes for the credit union.
0: Got it. So one follow-up, and after that, Manisha, I'll hand it over to you. And that is um, Cornerstone Research. They're here at MX Summit as well. Every year, they do a survey called What's New in Banking? And for the last four years consecutively, uh, banks have said that their top priority is account opening, digital account opening. So here I am as a product manager. I'm wondering if the executives have said that this is the utmost important thing for them. Why is it not being done, or what are they? What are these uh, smaller institutions, smaller FIs doing wrong? Would you have some insight there?
3: Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's wrong, um, or just that there's what people say and then there's what people do. <laughs> I'd say that. I think the biggest thing that's stopping most um institutions in the industry doing any innovation project whether that's digital account opening or you know putting in additional fraud systems or the real-time payments or anything else is that these things cost money um, and most institutions across the company have been conditioned to view technology as an expense now obviously on a financial statement technology is an expense you see it as it's actually called the, it's on the data pro it's called data processing when you go to the FDIC and pull the core report, you'll see on any financial institution, there's a data processing light. That's their tech spend. That's the money they spend on technology. Um, And so banks in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years have never seen or don't often see technology that delivers ROI or technology that makes their institution significantly better. And so they're conditioned to try to reduce and control that expense. Whereas us as technologists think about technology as an investment we can go and obtain or build this piece of technology and what it will allow us to do is serve our customers better, gain more customers, drive down costs, right, increase inclusion, whatever it happens to be that might be our sort of um, you know, numerical goal, technology allows us to achieve that. So we might spend $100 in technology, but it's going to make us $200 more efficient, so we made $100. And that's not typically the paradigm that banks have come from. So changing that mindset internally to get those budgets approved is often difficult.
2: I can definitely vouch for technology being an expense <laughs> um, that resonates. Um, moving into some of the uh, you know product specific questions, Raj, um, you mentioned that you had earlier start, started thinking about the concept of a neobank as opposed to what you offer today. Um, so coming fast forwarding to today, what, what is different between the experience that you have created for your customers versus some of what you see with the neobank? What are those differentiating factors?
3: Yeah, uh, from a user experience perspective, not a terrible difference, right? I, I think that if you were opening an account at a mental customer and you were opening an account at, you know, Chime or HM Bradley or Zero or Mercury or, you know, sort of any other sort of neobank, either on the consumer or commercial side, you would view the experience as very similar. Um, I think that we certainly mantle customers probably take a significantly different approach though, to risk um, and probably compliance. Um, you know, our, you know, our customers are obviously primarily like they they have a primary regulator, whereas a lot of fintechs are sort of indirectly regulated because that fintech is usually white labeling a bank account somewhere from some bank. Right, but they're not directly regulated because it's the bank that's directly regulated. So, what you will typically find with a mantle customer is they will be a little bit more thorough on the underwriting and the risk assessment, and the approval rates will typically be lower than the approval rates or the risk, you know, thresholds that you might see at at a typical neobank. And it's no surprise that 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 is what you know the industry is seeing in fraud rates. The fraud rates from you know the the neobank ecosystem has. Um, elevated the amount of fraud that you are seeing generally across the U.S. financial system, particularly in payments.
2: That makes a lot of sense. I think the regulatory uh, scrutiny being a little stronger in the environment you operate in uh, drives a lot of what you're saying. Uh, But that being said, I did also hear that you do have some um, pretty um, industry-leading conversion rates. So how do you come through on that front?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we have, and just like most neobanks have, you know, a sort of very focused eye on conversion rates because that is absolutely on, in any onboarding flow, whether you're Amazon or a you know, community bank, you know, generating that conversion is, is just so key um, to the economic outcome. So we spent a lot of time thinking about the user experience and a lot of time thinking about what can we do to increase conversion rates. Um, some of that is technology-led, and certainly we have you know, integrations with you know, great fintechs that allow us to you know, leverage um, really neat automation, pre-fills, things like that. But a lot of it actually is about how you set up the technology. So I'll give you a classic example of how you can drive higher conversion rates. It's by making different economic decisions that aren't even to do with risk. So if you decrease your funding amount that you require, so if you were opening a new account at a bank and they had an uh, opening funding amount of $500, right, and you change that from $500 to $100, you will see an increase in conversion rate, right? Now you will see less deposits generated initially, but you will get more customers, And on the high end of that, if you increase the maximum funding amount, let's say you had a maximum funding amount of $10,000 or $50,000 and you increase that to 100, 250, a million. We have some customers that use 10 million. What you can actually do is on the higher end, people will end up funding with some of those larger amounts. On the lower end, people will fund with lower amounts. Overall, what happens is you increase your conversion rate and increase the deposits you generated. So that's a win-win. And that's not a technology issue. That's, a, that's a how you set up the technology, how you've configured the technology that can drive conversion rate outcomes. And, and those sorts of changes, for example, can be not insignificant. Like that could be a mid-single-digit increase in conversion rates. You could add five percentage points of conversion by just doing something like that.
0: Another use case I wanted to bring up is, let's say, immigrants. Um, generally, you know, immigrants tend to have thinner credit files. So mm-hmm. how do you have special use cases for s- certain communities, because you are dealing with credit unions, and they're, you know, mostly active in specific communities, let's say people of color, or immigrant mm-hmm. communities, they will have different nuanced ed- use cases. So could you talk yeah. a little bit more about how you handle those?
3: Absolutely. So it's it's immigrant populations. It's also it's children, right? It's 16 year olds, 17 seventies, 18 year olds, college students, right? Um, it's people that maybe are unbanked, all of those sort of Groups aren't just like, and and I'm sure you guys have probably spoken about this in in a previous podcast, but just like, for example, they're really excluded from credit because of a lack of a credit file. That can also potentially happen from a deposit account perspective. And so what you can do actually is within our underwriting tooling, and we partner with a great fintech called Alloy for this in particular, um, is our system allows institutions to actually write rules based off the expected demographics of their of their customers right so if you're in a population that has a large immigrant community or maybe you're in a university town you can actually write rules that say for example if the customer entered a date of birth that said that they were I don't know, under 25 then the normal underwriting um, the normal underwriting rules that might apply to a 25 year old um uh, sorry to a 60 year old aren't applied because this person is 25. so for example you would expect a 60-year-old to have a very rich address history because they don't move very often and they probably own a home or rent a home. But a 25-year-old, a 22-year-old, 18-year-old probably lived at their parents' house, which means that that's their parents' address. And they probably lived in college and they moved around a lot and so they don't have much address history. And, of course, that's the same with immigrant communities as well, right? They usually have a very thin address file, right? Usually you can validate their social and their date of birth and their name, Right, Because those things don't change and are issued by the US government, but usually addresses one of those things that doesn't have a, a thick file. So you can actually set different underwriting rules based off your demographics. And that's super important. And moving away from one size fits all, you either fit in the box or you don't, is the type of tooling that you absolutely need to, to meet those challenges.
0: So, you know, Raj, how in the beginning I asked you, how do you define innovation? I would say this is innovation Different <laughs> um, <laughs> approaches to uh, underwriting, like that's great. Um, I would encourage more FIs to do this. So we have about three minutes um, for this moderate session. Manisha, would you have the last question for us before we open to the audience?
2: I'll gladly take the honors. Um, Raj, always curious to hear from especially uh, founders uh, what your vision for Mantle is. Um, Would love to kind of hear your uh, take on where you see Mantle heading.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, our industry has been around for a long time. I I referenced sort of those three large companies that have been around for a very long time. I think that there are so many areas of the U S financial system that technology touches that are really underserved and they're not necessarily the really sexy (laughs) areas that a lot of, you know, fintechs and neobanks are going after, but They're the picks and shovels that allow a lot of people all across this country, particularly in more rural and um, urban and and semi-urban areas, um, allow them to to bank, right? Mobile and online banking suites, lending products, risk uh, products. Those are the types of things that we think can really improve the user experience, um, but also improve the viability of community banking in America. And so we're always looking for opportunities where we can take the skills that we have um, to apply to different parts of the banking technology stack to hopefully drive you know outcomes that are significantly better. When we look at you know at an opportunity to build a new piece of technology, we're not thinking can we do it five or ten percent better than the technology that exists in the industry. We're looking if we can do it a hundred, two hundred, five hundred percent better. And if we feel we can do that, then that's an area that we're going to go into.
0: Great. Okay, so let's open up to the audience. Um, We didn't get to ask you all the questions you wanted to, Raj, but uh, we want to be true to the format. So if you guys have questions now in the audience, please come up. There are two ways to ask a question. I see some party hats, which is an indicator that you're new to Clubhouse. So the way is uh, you can raise your hand. There is an icon in the bottom right. If you click on that, uh, Manisha and I, we're moderators. We can bring you up on stage and you can ask your question directly to Raj. Or if you're not in a position to ask questions on stage, you can send me a message using the back channel feature, which is like an airplane icon. So if you click on that, you can send me or Manisha a message. So uh, the audience, you can come up now. In the meantime, Raj, we do have one question. It's from a person named Raj also. He is uh, an engineer in a financial... (laughs) Raj Swarnam, that's his name. Uh, we work with him. And he's asking, can, uh, for Mantle, what is the average cost of acquiring new customer?
3: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so... To be clear, Mantle itself doesn't do any marketing. We're, we're certainly the, with the technology that sort of facilitates taking that application and getting it underwritten and, and, and booked to the to the bank systems. Um, so it varies. It varies widely across the U.S. financial system. A credit union in Washington is very different than a bank in New York, as you can imagine. The cost of acquisition in large metropolitan areas is typically higher than the cost of acquisition in more rural areas where there's sort of less competition for the same sort of advertising space. What I will say as a general trend is that the cost of acquisition or CAC in the industry has been going up over the last 24 months. Um, That is because obviously physical... has been closed, a lot of branches and things like that. And so a lot of physical marketing has been closed. And so people are doing more and more digital advertising than they ever have before. And then we have more and more neobanks and more and more fintechs that are trying to compete for consumers with the banking system. And they are being driven by a lot of VC money as well. And that is, a lot of that is going into marketing. And so, you know, you've seen CACs increase um, typically, you know, you would try to look at a CAC anywhere from 100 to $250, maybe even $350 for a consumer checking account. Um, in America, that's typically, you know, sort of what you would see across different markets. But, you know, we've certainly seen, you know, that on the higher end recently, particularly in the last three to six months, you know, as the war for, you know, all of our business is increasing, um, you know, across this across the system.
2: Great. Thank you. Usually we don't have a shy audience,
0: but it seems like uh, (laughs) a little slower today. (laughs) Um, I have another one, if you like, and then I think Anton also wants to come on. So this one's from James Sontag. He's in the audience, and he's saying, are there any plans to provide solutions for loan applications and other products credit unions may offer?
3: Yes, that's the, the simple answer to that question. I think that um, where Mantle is today is we have a holistic origination system for all types of deposit accounts, so consumer and commercial. So you can be a small business, a large corporation, an individual, um, maybe you and your partner, um, you know your child, whatever it happens to be, wants to open an account. So we have the ability to open those accounts in physical and digital settings. Um, to kind of finish our vision of an onboarding system, obviously, is, is to allow lending, right? So any consumer in any context can open any type of account that it, at a, a bank or credit union through the mantle platform. We have a bit of time to get there, but we were absolutely looking to go into lending.
0: Great. Thank you. And I think Anton, hi, welcome on stage. Do you want to ask your question? So you're muted right now. Um, so you'll have to unmute yourself. There's an m- unmute button. On yeah. the bottom. Of-
4: <laughs> Sorry, I, I was just speaking away. Hey, uh, thanks. This, this is really informative. Raj, uh, you know, so when you were talking about customer acquisition costs, that's the acquisition cost for Mantle, right? Mm-hmm. But primarily for your customers, though, it is basically how they set up the underwriting rules that dictates their customer acquisition. Is that accurate?
3: Yeah, sorry. When I was talking about customer acquisition, I took it to mean for our customers. I wasn't talking about Mantle's acquisition cost to sell our solution to banks. I was talking about the acquisition cost for a bank or credit union across the country to acquire a customer. Okay. And and to your point, yes, absolutely right. Which is to say, there's a number of different factors that go into your acquisition, whether you're a bank or a neobank or a cha- your challenger bank or whatever you're doing. Um, one of them is the cost of of marketing to generate that lead. Okay. Yep. So, but you know, if you I don't know ten P, you know you have to show you know hundred dollars worth of display ads, and then one person clicks that lead, costs you a hundred dollars. Okay. Then you have to look at the conversion rate of, okay, I got that lead, but how many of those leads actually submit an application, fill out the you know the full application, hit submit. So let's say 50% do, which means your cost per submission is $200. And then you're absolutely right. You have to factor in your underwriting and what you would call in the industry, your approval rate, right? And so if you're only approving one in four or 25%, your cost of acquisition just went from $200 to $800. Right. And so you can see how each step along the way, it's important to optimize for all of those. And sometimes it's actually the most expensive marketing channel that has the highest approval rate. Right. And so it's not just trying to keep each of those, you know, get each, you know, get the marketing cost as low as possible. Because actually, usually when there's a low marketing cost, it has a very low approval rate. So you've got to optimize for the entire equation, not just one part of it.
4: Yep. Is there any sweet spot that, uh, the neobanks and credit unions have more success in uh, than in other areas. So, so you did mention that you have different kinds of underwriting rules. Yeah. Based on you know your observation, where are the customers most successful? Right. Like, are they mostly successful when they have uh, uh, more liberal underwriting rules or yep. tighter underwriting rules? Or uh, I, I mean, yep. where do they optimize this? Right. Like, is it mostly yep. around customer acquisition or is it around deposits?
3: Yep. So d- different so depending on where you are. If you're a neobank, you're going to the lowest cost, highest um, uh, the highest depth or, or uh, biggest depth channels, mostly social, Instagram, Facebook, etc. and you are driving a relatively low cost per lead, right? And the, the neobanks are making that work because they have higher approval rates than a bank would on the same traffic. Right. And on that same traffic, a bank looks at that traffic and it could have a single digit approval rate on that traffic. Whereas a neobank might be approving 20, 30% of that traffic because the neobank is actually just taking way more risk than the bank is willing to take. Mm-hmm. On the opposite side, a bank has a high approval rate on things like organic traffic and um, banks usually have a higher organic base because they have branches and physical advertising and they've been in the community for 20 years and your parents bank there and those sorts of things and they're doing local newspaper ads the things that we would think are pretty analog but that sort of stuff, for example, at a bank might have a 70, 80% approval rate, right? But obviously a, neo- a neobank doesn't have that luxury. So, you know, it really, really depends on who you are, where you are in the system as to what is the best sort of equation for you. Got it. Thank you.
0: Anton, I forgot to ask you to introduce yourself. Could you also tell us about yourself? <laughs> yeah, so, so my name is
4: Anton. I kind of lead uh, the technology space within US Bank for open banking. Um, so most of my work is with partners. You know? So uh, typically a bank serves their customers directly. So a typical retail banking business is B2C, but we are mo- my teams mostly work with B2B kind of engagements.
0: Lovely, thank you, Anton. And uh, next we had Nefemi, I hope I'm not butchering your name. Welcome on stage. You'll have to unmute yourself. Okay, if not, he did message me his question. So he's wanting to ask you if you have any, uh, any interest in expanding overseas. He's saying how scalable is your technology outside of the United States, particularly in the African market?
3: Yeah, we, we've actually been asked from time to time, uh, both in Africa, Europe, and, and the Middle East, um, that it's not trivial uh, to localize uh, our solution um, internationally because of the different compliance regimes. So, like, we, we are do operate in a heavily regulated place. So, you know, in the short term, we don't have plans to, to go outside the U.S.
0: Okay, thank you. Marcel, welcome on stage. Do you want to introduce yourself and ask yourself?
5: Hello, my name is
3: Marcel. I'm a UX designer and I work in finance as well. My question is, when scaling your organization, what was your biggest opportunity, specifically on your team's structure and how do you solve for it? Sorry, maybe I missed that. What was the biggest opportunity in reference to what? The question is, what was your biggest opportunity, specifically on your team's structure and how do you solve for it? Yeah, but when scaling your organization, yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of different things that we did that may be slightly different to other organizations. Um, one of the things we did on our commercial side, we, we noticed in the industry that there was a really big disconnect in technology vendors for banks between the promises that were made by the sales team and then the delivery of the actual technology to the customer. And we heard a lot of our clients say that in in the past, they'd be really burnt by people promising that things would be done by a certain time, or we'd get certain features. And then when they actually got into the nitty gritty of it, nothing was ever done on time and the features weren't delivered. And so one of the things that we did at Mantle was centralize the sales and marketing function, which we call growth and the customer success function, which both implements and then supports our solution under one executive, and what that's allowed us to do is to really balance the equities between our obvious need and financial motivation to grow as a you know as a startup that has investors and, and employees that we need to we need to build value for, um, but also make sure that whatever we're saying and promising from a sales perspective is actually deliverable and delivered by our customer success team. And so that is not a structure that typically happens at a lot of companies. And we decided to do that. And I think it's really served our customers well. And also, I'm really happy to report that we have a really great, productive, working relationship between our growth team and our success team, which is not always the case. Um, And I think that similar lessons can be learned on the more engineering side with product and development right? Um, you can have them reporting to different leaders, but you can also have them reporting to the one ultimate leader and helping to balance, again, the equities between, you know, how long we might spend in design versus how long we might spend in engineering and those sorts of questions as well. Gotcha. Thank you. It's a really good answer. No worries. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Marcel. Over to you, Guptin. Welcome. Hey. Can you please introduce yourself first and then ask you?
1: Yeah, my name is Gupton and I, I work as a technology architect uh, for a uh, larger bank, but my my curiosity. You, you did mention that you know all the technology spend by the large banks. Is there something that you do? How do you make? How do you work with like a, a community bank to use technology to their advantage? Is there ways to make it localized so that they're competing? And, and maybe a follow on our our Mr. Thought with all the technology pushing larger banks. You know they can go pretty much all over the country. Will there be a? You think there will be a big attrition if uh, smaller community banks don't adopt um, more technological solutions?
3: Um, On your second sort of question, first, yes, Um, I think that that will absolutely happen. Um, You know, the way that a a small institution, you know, somewhere in the country, um, sort of felt um, competition. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, was Chase came into town or Wells Fargo or whoever it happened to be, and they bought a plot of land right on Main Street, and then they started building a big branch. That is actually not happening anymore. In fact, the number of branches in the US is going down year on year and, and, and decade on decade for the first time in you know over since since banking started in America, actually. Um, the way that community banks have been competed against is completely digital. And so you can't see it as easily Right, you can't feel it as easily, but it's absolutely happening because the data is showing it's happening. So that's number one. On, on the first side of it is um, the way that you differentiate through technology, you're right, right? If, if I could buy that, if one institution could buy the technology, the institution across the road could buy the same piece of technology, how do you differentiate, right? Because community banks don't usually have the capability to build custom software themselves from a cost structure perspective. And the answer to that is really how you use the technology, the products you choose to provide through the technology, right? And how you configure the technology. Um, We can have two mantle customers that can use our technology in completely different ways. You can have a customer that uses it to serve their local community only in the state, for example, they operate in. Um, We have customers that go completely national um, with their reach. We have other customers that use it to... Um, drop presence digital presences into new markets they're looking to go into or adjacent states they're looking to go into right or to be more competitive digitally than they might be physically and so there are a lot of different tactical ways you can use it different products you could use and then different setups of the technology that allow you to kind of differentiate yourself uh, depending on your strategy thank you
0: thanks guptin over to you tammy welcome we're happy to have you on stage. Uh, I think you'll have to unmute yourself. Ah, there we go. There we go. Thanks,
6: Mm -hmm. Ambika and Manisha. Tammy Fleming, and I come from financial services, and I have an interest in third-party risk management, Raj, really focusing on uh, emerging tech, uh, innovation, digitalization. My question, it kind of goes back to Anton's original question he started with, um, focusing on, Uh, account opening, and I'm looking at it from a risk perspective, can you clarify the customer onboarding for KYC? So is Mantle's platform, do you work with fourth parties to do that validation that the customer is really who they say they are? And um, once that once that authentication is is done and validation for the the customers that you uh, need to actually expand on and do some additional due diligence, how do you do that? Can you just
3: talk about that process a little? Raj, I think you're on mute. Yes, I am. I made the same mistake. <laughs> hey, I I absolutely can expand on that. So. Um, you are absolutely correct. Obviously, that there is a component in the underwriting that you need to do. There's two, really, two components. One is a compliance component, which you're ac- very accurately describing. Um, you know, and there is obviously pretty significant guidance under FFIEC um, about you know collection of CIP, validation of CIP, for example, the four prongs of CIP. So, of course, every institution that we work with is is doing that, right? And so, what Mantle sort of recommends in that space is you're obviously collecting actively collecting from a customer information that customer is telling you, right? Name, address, date of birth, so on and so forth, social security number, potentially an ID document, other answers to other questions. And then there's also the ability online to passively collect information, the IP address of the user, um, you know, maybe uh, the funding information they provided um, using, um, using auth or uh, aggregation services, and we can feed all of that information into an underwriting system and then we can go out to various third party data sources just like you might do in a branch you might run a qualifier check right you're going to run an ofac check well you have to do all of those sorts of things digitally as well in fact you end up running more checks right because you want to check the device type you want to check the ip address you want to make sure that person's not coming from you know an, an offshore Uh, address, right? You want to make sure it's a US person. Um, And so we're going to things like LexisNexis, SoCure, White Pages Pro or Carter. Um, You know, we're going to OFAC list, we're going to potentially a qualifier or an an Equifax ISRB um, and other like data sources to triangulate that identity to get to as higher confidence that we can validate those prongs of CIP, but also we can validate from a risk perspective that we want to take that customer. Um, those settings are completely individualised to each institution. So, you know, the question earlier talking about how do you, you know, make it your own from one institution or another. One bank could have a completely different set of underwriting criteria and a level of confidence that they need to accept that account to another institution. I was alluding to that a little bit before when I was saying that what we find is a lot of neobanks have a very, let me put it this way, a different and objectively lower bar in taking their customers than we see most financial institutions have. And then, of course, you're absolutely right. To the extent that you can't validate any of that, and the most common example is address. Somebody's moved recently, right? So we can't validate their address. We're going to probably have to ask that customer to provide us a document because we couldn't validate it automatically. And so we move away and we start using maybe some document-based verification under the FFIC guidance to validate that. A very important question.
6: Yeah, thank you. Um, can I just uh, one other quick question? And I just first of all, want to give you kudos. I see on your site that you can uh, your platform can go live in three months or less, which is awesome. Is that have you found that to be a true statement too with large financial institutions?
3: Yeah, uh, well, it depends on how large. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think a, a, a top five bank in the country can do anything in three months, is <laughs> not my experience. But certainly can have can do it in three months. I think it also depends on which core banking system you're on, um, particularly on the community regional side um, and how quick you can have access to the APIs um, to facilitate our integration. Um, but you know that's a, probably a level of detail we could get to do separately if you're interested.
0: So I have something to add there, Raj. Um, uh, I yeah. do belong to a big, uh, I do belong to a lot of institutions <laughs> and what I'm about to share is public knowledge. Uh, so we did build an account opening digital platform last year, and we built it in a matter of six weeks. So it is possible. Rare, but possible.
3: Yeah. Well, not everybody has as good a talent as you do as as U.S. Bank, right? Word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, over to you, Alex. Hi, welcome on this on the stage.
5: Thank you. Thank you very much. And I apologize for missing most of the initial comments. I guess my question is really around, um, you know,
3: the the part of the process before digital account opening we're seeing a lot of competition from banks and neobanks on customer acquisition.
5: And I guess I was just curious for Raj's perspective on sort of what he sees from trends, from a trends perspective around customer acquisition and different approaches both banks and fintechs are taking to try to sort of outdo each other uh, before it gets to the digital
3: economy. Yeah, absolutely. So for sure, exactly what you're hearing is exactly what I'm seeing both in the data and anecdotally. with more and more dollars pouring into neobanks um, from venture capitalists and more and more neobanks being created, And then you've got obviously the large institutions and then you've got community regionals all looking for the same eyeballs, right? And particularly with COVID where a lot of physical avenues to acquire customers have come down, the you know, the, the, the inventory of of digital opportunities, right, is getting bought quicker and quicker and at higher and higher prices. So the CAC in the industry or cost of customer acquisition is definitely going up. It will be interesting. and, And I've seen that particularly over the last three months, but certainly basically from the start of the pandemic. It will be interesting, particularly to see what happens with neobanks. I broadly add, you know, we are friends with a number of different neobanks. I certainly know with higher CACs, There is greater and greater pressure from investors in neobanks and on neobank executives to figure out a sustainable revenue model for the customers they are acquiring. And what they already had was very thin revenue generation from each customer and very thin margins. And when you increase the CAC by $50, $100, $250, that can literally wipe out any profit for the entire year on that customer. And so that's a great sorting that needs to happen, right? And particularly if we see a downturn, that will happen more quickly. But that is a conversation that is absolutely having being had amongst investors and people in fintech and neobanks as to what is a sustainable business model here? And if CACs are going to be this high and they aren't $25 or $50 or $75 anymore, well, then these numbers don't necessarily stack up. And so I am not actually – I'm not actually sure if we're going to actually see the volumes that we are seeing out of neobanks going forward six to 12 months. We may, but I could really see it cooling off in the industry because right now, neobanks are deploying dollars with negative margin. And so they're acquiring customers that are then losing the money. Um, And you could do that for a little while. Um, And we know Chase has done that, for example, with the Chase Sapphire Reserve. They lost $210 million in one quarter on that strategy, right? Um, But, you know, not every neobank is Chase, and they don't necessarily have those financial resources.
0: Any follow-up from you, Alex?
5: No, that was great. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Alex. Okay, over to you, Andrew. Welcome on stage.
5: Thanks for having me again. Um, Maybe we can stay on the subject of, of, of customer acquisition costs. I am invested in um, in, in a business neobank that's set to launch in the Canadian market um, this year. But of course, their customer acquisition costs are significantly higher than if they were a consumer-focused neobank. Are you thinking about an approach uh, to to business banking and and how you could solve that problem for uh, credit unions and community banks? Or are you solely focused on um, account openings for individuals at this point?
3: Raj,
2: also on mute
5: again. Oh, sorry.
3: Uh, I, I will say, <laughs> I will say, yes, we definitely do provide technology for banks and credit use to onboard commercial customers. Um, the silver lining to what you said, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Obviously, the customer acquisition cost for businesses is is much larger than it is for consumers, but also the lifetime value of that customer is significantly higher. Um, the banking businesses is the revenue driver for community banking. The vast majority of, of of profit generated from a community bank is done through their commercial relationships, and so the opportunities to drive more fee income, but also more lending income from uh, business customers, is significantly higher than consumer customers. So, it is definitely more expensive to attract them, but they
5: they are also potentially more profitable if you can sort of get it right. Maybe I can reframe my question. So, yeah, I think the the unit economics for um, business banking as a neobank or a community bank or credit union are going to be different. Can you still deliver value um, to business banking, to op- opening originating accounts for business banking?
3: Yes. Um, are you talking about Mantle specifically with our technology? Are you talking more generally? Yes, Mantle, specific- Mantle specifically. Yeah. So, yes, we do open business accounts for community banks and credit unions. We provide that technology. And we help them by that technology is aimed at helping that institution increase their reach and be able to open more accounts with more people that aren't necessarily in their physical presence, right? So do that digitally, which they've never been able to do before. And in addition, in the physical setting, help to reduce the time and cost it takes to onboard that customer
5: to to reduce the, the cost structure for the institution.
0: Okay. Andrew, did that help?
5: Yeah, thank you so much. This has been the best FinTech Cafe so far. No it's
0: worries, awesome. thank you. <laughs> Hi Sean, Well, over to you if you want to introduce yourself.
7: Yeah, uh my name's Sean Scott. I am a principal product manager at a uh, at a large incoming bank. I think we're number 5 now. <laughs> uh the the Raj, a great uh great conversation. I think all the fintech cafes are as, you know, are are awesome. I don't have any favorites. It's it's hard to pick favorites when in terms mm-hmm. of, but um I think just taking it sort of away a little bit from the acquisition sort of discussion and, and kind of um, into product management. So mm-hmm. as you're, you know, you've talked about sort of a sales team um, uh, and, you know, and marketing. And, and I'm sort of wondering, uh, in terms of aligning all the, sort of the separate teams, whether it's product, creative sales, or, um, uh, you know, technology, um, do you leverage, say, OKRs? Or what's the mechanism you leverage to keep everybody aligned um, to sort of the, the the overall the overarching strategy.
3: Yeah, um, that's a very sort of geeky operational question, but what we do internally at Mantle is use something called WIGs, which is wildly important goals. It's like a spin on OKRs. I think it's a little bit simpler. It was a little bit simpler for us to um, implement than OKRs. It was actually something that was run. Um, it was an initiative that was run by one of my co-founders and our Chief Technology Officer, Ben um and what we actually found and the reason why we put that in place is we found we were setting too many goals early on in our company because we wanted to do all these things right we were young and there's so many opportunities and there's so many things we wanted to build we'd end up setting five priorities or six goals or seven goals or whatever it happened to be or four goals and when you set that many goals none of them are really goals um, because you're just trying to run in too many different directions at the same time um and what basically the essence of the wildly important goals was, is that like you have fewer goals, but make sure they're wildly important, right? Like what is the key North star of the company? What is the thing or maybe max the two things that you want to achieve in whatever time period you set. And so that really helped us focus um, a little bit more um, and, and just really try to stay on you know, the immediate mission versus like the mission that we wanted within 10 years. And, that, and that's kind of what we've done. And we've found that to be
7: helpful that that and, and thanks it, it sounds like the, the big hairy goal a little bit from, um i think i'm james collins um and, and in terms of so what have you found i mean i know some companies sort of check in on a, on a monthly basis some on a quarterly basis some even on a weekly basis uh, in terms of cadence what have you found that sort of works for you and has that evolved over time
3: yeah um it has evolved over time um, typically on a team level that that check in might be weekly or biweekly, and then on a company level, that check-in is usually more uh, monthly, um, usually at like our company all hands, um, where we sort of talk about it from a macro perspective, but each individual team is talking about, you know, achievement to goal more regularly than that. Um, And then what we do on a monthly basis is we kind of retrospect and then prospect, right? So like we look back on on the quarter and say, overall, how do we go against the goal? And what worked and what didn't work as we were trying to achieve the goal? And do we need to change anything about the way we're trying to go about achieving the goal for the next quarter? Um, We found you couldn't do that on a weekly basis. Otherwise, all you do is spend your time thinking about it and instead of doing stuff. Um, So we found like the quarterly cadence was the best cadence to assess, um, you know,
7: kind of what we'd been doing on a more strategic level. Awesome. Thank you for that insight. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, John, and we have about less than 60 seconds left, and we have one more question on stage. So before we take that question, Raj, I want to thank you again for coming on. Just for everyone's awareness, I barely met him about two hours ago, and uh, <laughs> we, we made this happen very quickly. His PR team got involved, so totally hustling here. So thank you, Raj, for coming on um, without any preparation, and I really appreciate your generosity today.
8: Of course, thank you.
0: So with that, over to you, Piyush, for your last question.
8: Thank you, Ambika. Always good to be last. <laughs> um, <clears throat> great session so far. Very quickly, I know we're running out of time. Um, I'm a management consultant, and uh, de- these days I'm a digital transformation practitioner and, uh, in a startup. I lead the technology piece there. Uh, my question to you, Raj, is with uh, um, respect to the um, unique selling point of uh, Mantle uh, account opening and uh, uh, fast uh, kind of things, how do you ensure there are no fraudulent transactions, or for that matter what what steps are you taking to re- reduce fraud in banking? Thank you very much
3: yeah, absolutely thanks for the question so this kind of ties a little bit into tammy 's question earlier which which had a, a compliance flavor to it, but it also goes to risk um, mantle itself doesn 't dictate the underwriting of any account we don 't set the exact rules or policies um, but we provide the tools to allow each institution to enable their own rules and policies and settings because a institution that's in California that's doing business accounts is very different than an institution in Florida that's doing consumer accounts and everything in between. And most institutions know their demographics of their customers the best. And every institution across the country has a different risk tolerance And so no two institutions are the same in underwriting, whether that's underwriting a mortgage or whether that's underwriting a consumer deposit account. So we're really a tools-based company, right? We provide the technology to facilitate you making the best decision you possibly can. Now, that in and of itself is not enough because if we just gave the tools to an institution, I could tell you what they'll do. They'll turn up the knobs to 10 on everything and they'll basically decline all customers because they'll be really conservative. Or they'll take whatever they're doing in their branch setting or physical setting and then apply it digitally. And when you actually look at the data of doing any of those sorts of things, what you find is that's wildly inefficient and does not drive the best risk outcome. It doesn't drive the best customer outcome. It also doesn't even drive the best compliance outcome, right? And so we also have data scientists on staff at Mantle, and we look at the data across our entire customer base on an aggregated anonymized basis, and we're doing things like regression analysis and backtesting and what-if work to understand and then provide white papers and data analysis of best practices for our banks. So if a bank comes to us and says, I want to do consumer accounts in Texas, or a bank says, I'm in Utah, but I want to go national, right? Then we have different underwriting that we might say you might want to do in Texas than you might want to do across the country. Or if you have, you know, and we were discussing this earlier, if you have a younger demographic or a more immigrant heavy demographic, then those different underwritings are going to come in but what we want to do is we want to do that being informed by the data and letting the data tell us what is the most efficacious rule set um, and we provide that as advice we are never setting that as policy and the bank will make the ultimate decision
8: got it thank you very much you're welcome uh, i have to say one thing as part of uh, Helping a Brazilian bank to become a digital bank uh, many years ago when I used to work with Price Coopers and IBM. Uh, this was this was one of the biggest uh, challenge, and uh, I'm glad you you guys are uh, solving that problem. So thank you very much for doing that, and thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank
0: you. Great. Thank you, Piyush. And with that, we're at the end of our session. Any parting words from you, Raj? I know dinner's waiting, and so uh, is the live performance with the Goo, Goo Dolls. <laughs> uh,
3: no, I, I was born in the 80s, so Goo, Goo Dolls is meaningful for me, and that just shows <laughs> you how old I am. But no, I just wanted to, Amika and, and uh, Manisha, I wanted to thank you both um, for being very gracious hosts. And um, I know I was pinch hitting here, but thank you also for the, the wonderful questions. Um, and hopefully I was able to maybe impart a, a little bit of, something that you can all take away and, and you know, apply in your, um, you know, in your, in your sort of uh, endeavors. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Manisha, you were going to say
2: something? I was going to say Andres, I think kind of had the headline on that. He called it the best show and we've done
0: 24 shows, Raj. So thank you. Oh, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, enjoy your dinner. Yeah. And for those, if you like to join tomorrow, the rest of the sessions that MX has, uh, again, you can go online, register for virtual registration, and you can use the code FinTech Cafe for free registration. Uh, Raj, do you have any panels tomorrow that you're speaking on?
3: No, already did it today. I, I'm done with the speaking now. So I'm yes, going okay. to have a cocktail now.
0: <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again for those who joined. And again, we look forward to meeting you next week. I think next week we have Ethan Buck, who is the founder of Digit. So we'll continue our conversation next next week. Thank you and have a good evening.